we tend to see and we have seen now where people are getting 50 grams plus of, of fiber in their diet possibly what you can do is actually yeah, change over some of those foods and have some foods that perhaps are a bit more um, refined don't have as much fiber you'll still get your 25 30 grams of fiber very easily but then you'll also be able to increase your energy intake Hello and welcome to The Long Munch, the nutrition podcast for runners, cyclists and triathletes. I'm Alan McCubbin. And I'm Steph Gaskell. We're both accredited sports dietitians based in Melbourne and combined have over 30 years experience working with runners, cyclists and triathletes to help them stay healthy and optimise their performance from complete beginners through to professional and Olympic athletes. Each week, we take a deep dive into the most common nutrition questions that runners, cyclists and triathletes ask, the sort of things that people are debating on their run or ride in the coffee shop afterwards or going to Dr. Google to try and find answers for. So we'll take those questions, break it down and invite a guest expert, researcher in our A episode and an athlete or coach in our B episode to add their perspective as well. Today it's episode 40A, Is Fibre My Friend or Enemy? Now having said we invite a guest expert, today we're doing this one in-house given Steph's expertise in this particular area. So we are going to discuss what is fiber? Because that can be a little bit confusing for people and some of the general recommendations in terms of fiber. But we'll also dive into what happens if you have too much or too little fiber as an athlete, both in terms of general health, but also specifically to what goes on during exercise. We'll look particularly at why athletes might inadvertently eat too much fiber. Is that a problem? And if so, what to do about it? And then also the timing of fiber around exercise and the importance of that in terms of preventing or managing gut issues as well. So another week, Steph, we had a week off last week. You had a bit of R&R, had the family visiting, and you got some exciting news. <laughs> yes, I do, Al. I proposed on the weekend to my partner, Tanya, and um, thankfully she said yes. So um, that was the response I was, I was hoping for. Yeah, and um, yeah, we had we had a really lovely weekend um, away as well. We actually went to a chateau in Yarrow Glen, um, a winery nice. down there. So yeah, that was really lovely. Yeah, awesome. Well, congratulations. Thank you. Thank and you. And feeling nice and relaxed to come back to the podcast. Feeling, yeah, pretty nice and relaxed. Not much longer, a few weeks or so away and I'll be even more relaxed. But yeah, so far, so good. Yes. And what about you? What did you get up to on the on the weekend? I know you're actually um, feeling somewhat relaxed now because you've had a big last six or seven months. Mm, yeah, absolutely. So you were saying off air before, things were just out of control work-wise for the first six months of this year, really, uh, with so many different things going on at the same time. I'd work multiple sort of part-time roles and Usually they're, they're juggling because one's quiet and the other's busy, but uh, particularly the last couple of months, they've all been busy simultaneously, which has been a bit of a struggle, but that's okay. That sort of pressure valve's just been released over the last week or so, which is really nice. The kids were home with school holidays, so it was just as well. Um, they're back at school as of this week. So yeah, finally get to relax a bit, watch the tour, which has been good. Um, been exciting tour so far, so that's been great. And uh, yeah, it's, it's been good. Al, you have left a little bit of information out there. There have been a couple more exciting things that have happened. Um, so Aska, who we had on not that long ago, Aska, you can drop in the episode about um, uh, carbohydrate intake. He has his own uh, really cool website and Instagram and he has recently done some really lovely infographics in terms of um, sodium intake and sports nutrition. And I know that you've been involved in that. So um, can you fill in the listeners on that one? And then once you've told us about that, I also know that there's been a recent paper released by um, Ricardo, yourself and Alice in terms of gut symptoms and perhaps a difference between runners and cyclists. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, the first one was some work that Asker and I collaborated on. So his website is mysportscience.com. Uh, and as you said, it's got a whole bunch of blog posts and, and really well done infographics uh, on a whole range of sort of sports science and usually with a nutrition focus, but not always. 
So he contacted me a little while ago, actually, before we did the podcast with him and asked for some assistance with that. So we, we put together um, 10 blog posts in total. They're all fairly short ones, you know, sort of three to five minutes each to, to read. Uh, and then they cover everything from, you know, what are sodium and electrolytes? What are they used for? What's the evidence that they actually help from a performance point of view? Uh, and then some of the stuff that, that we've talked about on the podcast previously, some of that modeling data that I've done just recently looking at well, in what situations does sodium actually need replacing? Why and how much? And we're going to do a podcast on that in the coming weeks as well. Um, and then the second one there was around the the new publication. So yeah, so that was a publication that, that Ricardo and I and, and Alice worked on, as you said, looking at whether there were any differences during sort of the same type of exercise between runners and cyclists uh, in terms of gut symptoms, in terms of... Um, you know, injury to the gastrointestinal tract and that kind of thing. Because obviously there's often a lot of talked about that, you know, runners tend to get more gut issues than cyclists. Uh, and did we see that during this study under sort of standardised conditions? And actually we saw very little difference between the two. Um, and we, we talked a little bit about that actually with Asker on that episode a couple of weeks ago, uh, episode 39A, um, that possibly, you know, the, the reason that runners get more gut issues is simply because it's more practically difficult to carry carbohydrate with you during exercise. And so a lot of runners probably don't practice with carbohydrate and, and consuming food and fluids as much during their training and then tend to have more issues on race day, possibly just because their gut's not used to it. Whereas in cycling, obviously, it's a lot easier to carry those things with you. So it may actually be more that sort of lack of gut training, so to speak, than actually mechanical differences between running and cycling that result in those differences. And then if you look at something like triathlon, particularly long course triathlon, you know, you tend to see a lot more gut issues on the run uh, in an Ironman, for example, but that's because it's later on during the race. If it was the other way around and you ran first and then rode at the end, you may actually see that reversed. So it may not be something special about running. It may simply be just it's later on during the duration of the exercise. Mm. Yeah, that's interesting. Now you made me want to extend my thesis and add the cyclists into my <laughs> recent um, study. So yeah, more work in that area, but yeah, good um, good research to start. Mm. And also the other thing with the work you've done that's going to be coming out with ASCA is that I think listeners will find useful as well is you talk about the different sort of electrolytes or minerals that are lost in sweat. And perhaps are they as important as sodium? Because um, I know that often people get confused and they think they need to replace, I don't know, calcium or magnesium or something in terms of sweat. So I'm sure they'll learn if they do need to be as worried in those posts and blogs. Yeah, yeah. And we've, we're hoping to do a, an episode specifically around magnesium coming up soon as well. We're just trying to tie down someone in terms of uh, a guest to, to talk about that who's done some research in that area. Yeah, yeah, cool. So we've got some social media shout-outs and or questions. Um, what's been happening on Instagram? Yeah, so on Instagram we were contacted by Ben, who actually contacted us a while ago uh, with a question that he wanted answered on the podcast, which was around sort of the environmental impact of sports nutrition and sustainable diets. And uh, we haven't forgotten that request, Ben. We're, again, chasing up a potential guest for that episode. There's one person in particular that we think would be perfect for that, but... Uh, Mm. Tracking them down has been a bit difficult, so we'll keep trying yeah. and uh, we'll get that yeah. done as soon as we can. But Ben replied uh, just last week, hey team, half marathon was on the weekend and it was probably the best experience I had for an energy level and nutrition perspective. Thank you for this podcast and making the information digestible for everyone out there. I put down listening to your pod for my positive experience on race day, which is fantastic. So thanks so much, Ben. Great to hear from you and, and great to get the feedback. Yeah, awesome. And then on Twitter, we had Paul, who's a sports nutritionist in the UK, and he said that he just actually finished listening to episode um, 10A, and that one was, do I need a sweat test? Uh, and he found that podcast brilliant. Um, he had some questions around drinks and, and sodium for fluid absorption, um, but I think that may have been answered in that podcast. And he said, keep up the great podcasts coming and they're really valuable and really valuable for him because he works a lot in the um, ultra endurance space. 
Yeah, yeah, exactly. So yeah, now I've replied to to Paul on Twitter with the answer to those questions. Awesome, awesome. Now, Steph, as usual, uh, you've been out and about this week. Obviously, you've had the parents visiting, so maybe you haven't been out and about amongst the uh, the running cycling triathlon community quite so much. But uh, mm-hmm. have you been into contact with some people that have given you some feedback? Well, I have been in contact with, um, I've been doing some teaching, casual teaching at universities, and I have been giving our podcast a plug, but more so just because um, it people have found it useful, and I know it's already um, used it in UniSA, and it, it just helps give some students a nice practical um, information as well and positive feedback from them saying it was useful in terms of the particular topic they may have been looking at. So, yeah, that's otherwise, uh, yeah, I, I haven't. I've been kind of a bit preoccupied um, lately, but I'll, I'll get yeah. back out there. Yes, yep, absolutely. <laughs> get back out there and training for that uh, I know. second trial that you were I know, <laughs> I know. I'm so <laughs> conscious of that and um, I've got to get get my butt into gear as well because I um, have not been out the door for a little while so I've got to get my, myself fit again um, and that will be happening um, this week. Cool. All right. Um, <laughs> and just a reminder, if you've got a particular question that you'd like answered on the podcast or you'd just like to give us any feedback, um, positive, negative or, or otherwise, you can contact us on social media at The Long Munch on Facebook, Twitter or Instagram. We'd love to hear from you. Today's episode, Al, is Fibre My Friend or Enemy, and this one was requested from a regular listener of ours, um, Lionel Worth. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, we had a look at this and sort of thought, well, how are we going to look at this? And I think Lionel had mentioned in the original uh, request that, you know, we talked about a fibre in a few different episodes. We've obviously had um, episode, I think it was 7A off the top of my head, Why Do I Get Gut Issues During Exercise?, uh, we also had an episode specifically about FODMAPs um, where you, um, you were the guest on both of those, Steph, and then we had some yep. some good follow-up athletes as well. Um, and just talking about fibre in the context of things like carbohydrate loading as well and, and talking about minimising fibre there. So Lionel was sort of saying, well, you know, you talked about fibre in, in a few different contexts, but um, can you bring it together and explain that for us? So, yeah, I thought it was really good opportunity to do that and, and ask, you know, is fibre my friend, which we tend to think of fibre as something healthy, uh, but is fibre yeah. my enemy in the context of exercise and gut issues and things as well? So we'll look at it sort of from both of those perspectives. Yep, yep, awesome. All right, so obviously we had those last two sort of gut-related episodes which were both in-house episodes given your expertise Steph and and your PhD as well. So we're doing the same here with this one and I know fibre is something you love talking about so this this won't be a stretch um yeah so i guess we start off by you know everyone sort of knows vaguely what fiber is and and that concept um but what is the actual technical definition of fiber if we had to talk about it from a nutrition point of view what what is fiber yeah yep it's a good question and it's one that actually has changed over the years so there's no real, I'd say, real clear single definition, although we seem to come to some type of agreement lately. But to try and keep it somewhat simple, it's basically referred to in a way as roughage and it's a segment of plants that cannot be broken down and most of components of fibre are actually a form of dietary carbo- carbohydrate. Um, there's a, an exception with what we call lignin that isn't, um, and that's also considered dietary fibre. The term was actually first used in 1953 by um, Hipsley, and he basically, or they described it as a plant that is plant sort of matter that is protective against toxemia in pregnancy. So that's what people thought thought it was, you know, particularly involved in back in 1953. But obviously since then, the term has been refined and it's been shown to be beneficial for a number of, of different um, things, which we'll get into. But yeah, that's that's probably the most simplest kind of way I think listeners should think of it. 
so I guess picking up on that, there's probably a couple of things there. Yeah. One is it's from plant foods. So by definition, it can only come from plants. Um, and I guess the second part of that is, you know, you talked about um, sort of the roughage or, you know, forms of carbohydrates. So essentially, um, and we've talked about this in the past, carbohydrate is basically starch or sugar and starches are basically just chains of glucose, fructose or, or galactose, which is in lactose, molecules joined together into long chains. Mm. And so when we're talking about fibre, we're basically talking about certain chains of carbohydrate, but because of their chemical structure, our bodies, or for humans, we lack the enzymes required to actually break that down back into sugar in the gut. And so we can't actually digest it and therefore we can't absorb it and use it as carbohydrate. So it just passes through the gut undigested, unabsorbed. Yeah, exactly. We, <clears throat> Particularly in the small intestine, we tend to not be able to digest and, and absorb yep. it and so it ends up yep. in large intestine. Yep. Yep. And then a whole bunch of stuff happens that we'll get to shortly. Yep. Um, I guess the uh, the other concept that people might be aware of is sort of the general categorization of fibre. So generally, we think of sort of two groups of fibres, yep. soluble fibre and insoluble fibre. So I guess the follow-up question is, what do those terms actually mean and what's the difference between them? Yeah, yep. Um, so it's basically based on how well they um, dissolve in water. So soluble obviously means that fibre is soluble in water. Insoluble, mm -hmm. it's, it's not. Um, it's, again, um, just recently kind of been argued how useful those terms are. However, there's some use in it, so we'll stick to that for, for now. But basically, soluble fibre, as we sort of tend to think of it, tends to form a kind of a gel-like solution in the in the gut. And there's um, short-chain fatty acids and gases that are produced when soluble fibre is broken down in the large intestine. So they're the ones that all the bacteria in your large intestine can gobble up, similar to the FODMAPs that we've talked about previously, and then produce those short-chain fatty acids and or the gas as a side effect of that. Yep. Exactly, exactly. Yep. And so with the insoluble fibre, what happens to that? So the insoluble fibre, basically you, you don't digest um, or absorb it very, very well. So it's um, minimally digested. So it ends up um, more so in the large intestine. And that is tend to thought to um, help with regulate bowel fun function and forming larger, bulkier types of, of stools. So um, generally, we can think of that potentially as um, perhaps speeding up transit time. So that's how quickly things move through the gut. Exactly. Yep. Yep. But there, it can get more complicated than that. Um, and within those groups, they can vary. But for now, we'll just we'll think of it in in those ways. There's also yep. another um, category that we pop into dietary fibre um, into that group and. Um, that's what we call resistant starch. And that one I know our listeners will, well, some listeners will have heard of just because of the health benefits. Um, and basically that starch that is um, resistant to digestion again, and that can also actually help increase stool mass and, um, and help in, improve intestinal health as well. So um, yeah. there's kind of like three main categories that we can, can think of. Yep. And if people are thinking, okay, well, that's nice, which foods, like I know kind of the fibrous foods, but which ones are more likely to have mostly soluble fiber, which ones are most likely to have insoluble fiber? Is there an easy way to make that distinction or is mm -hmm. it very blurry? Yeah. Um, generally, all foods will tend to have um, a mix of them. Um, mm. So, you know, I think, don't think that, yeah, one food just has soluble. It's probably always going to have both. But generally, in terms of soluble fibre, some good sources that we can typically think of are basically like your legumes, things like um, peas, soybeans, lentils, chickpeas. You know how we say baked beans healthy for your heart sometimes make you fart, those ones. Because of that gas that's produced when they're exactly. broken down by bacteria, yep. Exactly, particular fruits like prunes, plums, berries, bananas, apples, pears, um, and then you've got your veggies like your broccoli, sweet potato, um, others, and then you've got things that we would have heard of called psyllium husk, um, chia or kia as people say. We've got rice bran. Um, so there are some, some, some sort of more common ones and you can certainly, you know, do a very easy um, 
a, a Google or um, look at on um, Fazans, um, and they have a nice kind of category of of foods that are that are rich in those. Yeah. So Fazans is Food Standards Australia New Zealand. Yeah. Yep. There goes me using all the acronyms, which you yeah. can <laughs> <laughs> um, spell out. So they also look after all the like the the government owned food composition databases and that kind of thing, as well as the the laws around food labelling and things like that. Yeah. Yep. And so I guess the insoluble fibre will be then the ones you didn't mention, which is probably going to be more the whole grains, so things like your wheat and um, your, your grainy breads and pastas and all that kind of stuff. Yep, generally found, yeah, in the outer husk of, of your cereal grains like you've just mentioned, so whole grain breads and cereals, brown rice, um, but some fruits as well and, and the skin, as we generally know, on um, fruits and veggies like um, skin on tomato is quite good in terms of insoluble fibre. Um, and then like your nuts and seeds um, as well. Um, but, yeah, yep. like your brands um, particularly too. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, cool. Now, we've talked previously about food components that don't get digested or, or absorbed properly, like the FODMAPs, which mm. we talked about back in episode 21A. Mm. And you mentioned there's probably a bit of overlap there um, between sort of particularly the soluble fibre. You mentioned legumes, for example, and certain fruits, mm -hmm. which also happen to be sources of some of those FODMAPs, the galacto-oligosaccharides, the GOLS, mm. for example, that's mm. in the, the legumes and, and obviously fructose in, in some of those fruits as well. Yeah. Um, in this case, are we considering FODMAPs as fibre or is that different again, even though mm. they're both sort of eaten up by the bacteria in our large intestine? Mm. Yeah, um, FODMAPs are um, categorised in, in fibre um, because when you look again at the definition of fibre, which the most up to date is by the World Health Organisation that recently have come together in 2000 nine I think with a with the definition um, but it's it's also based on the the chain length of carbohydrates um, generally who would classify fiber as um, any chain length more than 10 um, is is in that category of fiber however in Europe of course they want to complicate it and they consider anything that's three um, sort of um, chain length and greater can be considered as fiber um, but so with um, FODMAPs um, you know, we talk about there's um, oligosaccharides, um, there's things like inulin that we talk about. Um, they are um, classified as, as fibre uh, because of the, that chain length. And um, uh, so, yeah, so FODMAPs definitely are in that. So, um, yeah, onion, all of those types of foods um, are considered a, a type of fibre. Yeah, okay. So similar, I guess, when we're talking to Andrea Brackus about, you know, whether it's an antioxidant, whether it's a polyphenol, mm. whether it's a flavonoid, you know, sometimes it can be multiple things because they're just different definitions based on the chemistry, you know, the food chemistry. Yeah. Um, but, you know, same food, essentially. Exactly. Or same component within the food, yeah. Yeah. Okay. And so... I guess we're talking about fibre today. Why is fibre something that runners, cyclists and triathletes might need to pay specific attention to beyond just its general contribution to a healthy diet? Mm, yep. A number of, of reasons, like we've said, yeah, for, for sure in terms of the, the benefit to health that it can provide in terms of potentially helping reduce risk of chronic health conditions, helping with cardiovascular health and um, particular cancers, etc., also, in terms of dietary fibre, we know can help increase um, our feelings of fullness. So, society, um, I can never say that word very well, Al. Satiety. Thank you, that one. Um, <laughs> so, you know, there are athletes where they may actually want to be feeling more full, particularly if they're um, not allowed a very high energy intake, um, where they may be needing to manage the body weight then obviously having a diet that is high in fibre can help them feel more satisfied. And we know that foods are, that are high in fibre can have a lower energy density. Um, so individuals in that category um, can benefit from, from fibre. Other um, ones that are probably not in terms of endurance sports so much, but there is a role of, of it in endurance sports, is um, um, athletes that are making weight, they will manipulate the fibre intake um, as well um, because sometimes they need to make a they need to make a particular weight. So reducing their fibre intake for a short period of time 
um, will actually reduce the um, the the fecal bulk in their body, and that can help reduce um, weight there. So that's a, another example. So there, you're not talking about body fat; it's just the number on the scale, essentially. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly right. Um, and individuals will tend to do that for like a um, sort of like potentially a 24, 48 um, hour period before, and that can help reduce their weight, and then they reintroduce it after. And there we're talking, I think there was a study actually, Jose Areta, who was one of our previous guests on the podcast, is actually one of the authors on that study. They looked at this recently. Yes. And I think on average off the top of my head, I haven't got it in front of me, I think it was between sort of half and three quarters of a kilo was the average sort of weight loss from doing that, mm. which, you know, for most people, most of the time probably doesn't really matter. Mm-hmm. But yeah, as you said, if you're if you compete in a weight category sport and you've got to weigh in it below a certain value, yeah. that might just tip you over the line and, and get you there. Yeah, yeah. Um, I know, um, is it um, Reed um, Al or Real? Real. Yeah, Real. Reed Real. Yeah, he, he obviously works in that area a lot in terms of combat sports and he's found in his practice by reducing um, the fibre intake that that can um, potentially be like a one to two kilo um, loss um, and, and presumably yeah. that depends on how much fiber you're eating in the first place exactly yeah 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 um, yeah. yeah so there there are some reasons obviously the other reason for athletes is the um, possibility that having uh, a high fiber intake particularly before particular sports may increase the risk of gastrointestinal symptoms so that's the the probably the main one that people know about in terms of fiber and tend to get that really general advice in terms of um you know okay well consider reducing your fiber intake leading up to um your event because it may help reduce the risk of gastrointestinal symptoms yeah yeah cool yep. all right we'll come back to that shortly yep. but i guess if we start with the positives first and talking yep. about you know fiber as my friend yep. um we've sort of talked a little bit about those health benefits already in terms of you know reduced risk of cardiovascular disease that feeling of fullness so if someone is um you know thinking more the general population if, if body fat loss is a goal from a general health perspective that can be beneficial it can be beneficial for people with type 2 diabetes to slow down the the absorption of glucose from food into the blood and and you know uh, lower that sort of curve of, of blood sugar as, as you eat a meal mm-hmm. um, and as you said you know reduced risk of things like bowel cancer as well so I guess they're some of the positives but how much fiber do we actually need to eat to sort mm-hmm. of achieve those kind of benefits mm, yep another good question I guess um, the other thing is we we know that getting in an adequate um, amount of fiber is um, is essential for the proper functioning of our gut, basically. Um, in terms of actually knowing uh, exactly how much we we need, um, that's that's very hard to to determine. However, the NHMRC, go on now, say what that stands for. National Health and Medical Research Council. Beautiful. For Australia and New Zealand have set out what we call adequate um, intake um, recommendations for fibre. Um, that's based off of our age, off of our gender as well. Um, but for, for um, general guidance in terms of adults, so we'd consider that being 19 years and older, um, the, the range of fibre is considered um, between 25 to 30 grams a day. Um, men, um, interestingly, have that higher intake recommendation than females. If you're pregnant, It's a little bit higher, so 25 to 28 grams a day. That's generally just because of our increased weight and possibly and definitely increased energy intake um, needs that we've discussed. And then if we're lactating, again, a little bit higher, 27 to 30 grams of um, dietary fibre a day. Um, But for anyone that, you know, can't remember that, if they go again to the NHMRC um, reference values, you'll find them there in terms of your particular age and gender. Yep, so the nutrient reference values or NRVs. Um, okay, and within that, so, you know, I'm eating, say I'm eating 30 grams of fibre a day. Does it matter how much of that is soluble versus insoluble, for example? 
does it matter if I got all of that from soluble and none insoluble or vice versa? I would say we don't have, you know, this particular answer. This is how much you need to get in in terms of soluble and this is how much we need in terms of insoluble. But we know that there's different um, health benefits to each of them. Um, even if we don't understand it all completely. So my best advice would be to try and get a, a, a variety of um, soluble, insoluble and resistant starch because they all work differently in the gut in terms of solubility, transit time, fermentability. So there's going to be benefits of, of having a range of those. Yep. Okay. And I guess from a running, cycling, triathlon perspective, what are the... I mean, apart from those sort of big chronic disease risks that we talked about before, what are the potential implications if we're not getting enough fibre in our diet? Mm, yep. So if we're not getting enough fibre in our diet, then potentially um, it will influence the, the functioning of your gut in terms of your bowel movements. So um, possibly for people where they may be then more prone to constipation. So it influences... Um, you know, if we don't get much fibre, it might um, influence the slowing of, of our transit time, so how quickly things move through into our um, large intestine. So if we're not getting enough fibre, it could influence that. Um, we've just spoken about, you know, fibre in terms of, you know, it's fermented in the gut and it can produce particular byproducts like short-chain fatty acids and, um, and gases and other things that can be beneficial to the health and to the diversity of our gut bacteria. If we're not getting enough, then possibly um, the our type of um, gut bacteria may not be as diverse. Um, and then also we may um, be at increased risk for particular chronic health conditions um, as well. So they would be probably some of those main ones, as well as if we're not getting much fibre, it might mean that um, we're, um, we might be hungrier so then we might be consuming more energy intake than what we need. You know, like I'm not feeling full and so we just keep eating. Also, foods that have a good fibre content, um, there's lots of, like we, we spoke with, with um, Andrew in terms of phytonutrients, phytochemicals, and actually in terms of um, we say fibre can help potentially reduce the risk of chronic health conditions, we don't actually know how much is that due to the fibre component or to the actual phytonutrients, etc. Um, because a lot of studies, when they research about fibre, it's actually not just isolated to fibre. Um, so, yeah, so there are some things that um, athletes need to be careful of. So, um, yeah, you don't want to reduce your fibre intake for a long period of time. Because mm, as you said, I guess that comes, you know, the fibre itself comes from foods that have a whole bunch of other nutrients and those non-nutritive components as well. Exactly. Yep. So they tend to be what we would call the, the nutrient-dense foods. Mm, yep. yep. Yeah. Okay. All right, so let's flip that around now and look at fibre as my potential enemy. Mm -hmm. So I guess you've talked a little bit about that already in terms of like if you don't get enough fibre, but I guess the flip side to that is potentially having too much fibre, and this is something that we've mentioned a couple of times throughout the podcast uh, across a bunch of different episodes. So... Is this, is this a problem and, and if so, why? Mm. You, you know, if, if not enough fibre is a problem, yep. you know, too much fibre is also an issue? Yeah, yeah. Um, possibly, again, for some of those reasons we've spoken about, um, if we get a lot of fibre in our diet, um, possibly it might increase the risk of gastrointestinal symptoms because we've said that there's certain types of fibres that um, can work both ways you know it can speed up transit time so how quickly things move through the gut and then other types of fiber can help potentially slow it down um, so you know we might be at increased risk of getting gut symptoms during exercise if we have a lot of it particularly in the pre-event um, meal um, the other is we do tend to see our that athletes partic particularly endurance athletes can have quite a high dietary fibre intake simply due to the quantity of food that they're consuming, perhaps also because of the types. You know, they we are health conscious, so often we do look for the healthier foods in terms of choosing the whole grains, keeping skin on fruit and veggies. Um, and perhaps it may interfere with your ability to then absorb um, vitamins and, and minerals because um, 
you know, fibre and um, foods have things like phytates, etc., that can interfere with the absorption of particular nutrients. Iron is one example. So there has been suggestion that if we have a high fibre intake, it could impair the absorption, so the bioavailability of nutrients. Some people argue against that. Um, they've sort of suggested if you get 50 grams of fibre a day, it's actually still okay, but it does appear to potentially influence it. And I guess the other thing as well, looking at the other end, is for athletes that actually may need a high energy intake, um, you know, they've got massive training loads. If they're consuming all these high fiber um, foods, they get full really quickly and then it becomes quite difficult to get in that energy intake. So there can be detriments potentially for, for having a high fiber intake as well. Yep. Yeah, cool. And I guess what we're saying here is not necessarily that the athletes with those high training loads should necessarily deliberately eat less than the recommended amount of fiber, mm. just that because they're eating so much food to get enough calories, they can inadvertently eat too much fiber. And it's the excessive fiber that's the issue, not getting the recommended amount. Exactly, exactly. You know, like we've just spoken, okay, 25 to 30 grams of fiber is, is kind of that recommendation. Um, we tend to see and we have seen our where people are getting 50 grams plus of, of fiber in mm. their diet. So we're definitely not saying put it to zero or 10, um, but possibly what you can do is actually, yeah, change over some of those foods and have some foods that perhaps are a bit more um, refined, don't have as much fibre, you'll still get your 25, 30 grams of fibre very easily, but then you'll also be able to increase your energy intake and perhaps carb intake without having such a significant fibre intake. Yeah, and we did a series of podcasts sort of towards the end of last year looking specifically at these issues of low energy availability and the consequences of underfueling. Mm. And I guess when you've got an excessive fibre intake, as you said, it's hard to meet your energy needs. And so the risk of sort of going into that low energy availability and all the health and performance consequences of that will increase. Mm. Yeah, and you can yeah. see a um, uh, when you look at the diets of people that um, experiencing that, you can see that the intake of fiber has been quite high. Yeah, yep. yeah. And, and so you mentioned obviously people that just eat a lot of food is one sort of risk uh, or at risk group of having excessive fiber. I guess the other one that springs to mind would probably be those who you know because fiber tends to come more does come exclusively from plants is people that are eating a vegetarian or particularly vegan diet mm -hmm. where. A lot of the, you know, they're relying on things like legumes as one of their main protein sources. And mm -hmm. because there's been a lot of messaging about getting adequate protein, you know, over the last 10 years or so, mm -hmm. there's been a big focus on that. And possibly people are eating these huge volumes of legumes mm -hmm. to get enough protein from mm -hmm. each meal that they're then getting huge amounts of fiber along with that. Mm, exactly. Huge amounts of fiber and FODMAPs too. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. 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 And I guess this comes back to something we talked about a while ago which I think is an interesting concept, is that confusion between, I guess, general health messages around nutrition for the general population versus sports nutrition-specific messages for you know, particularly runners, cyclists and triathletes that do large volumes of training because, you know, you look at the general public health messages, it's eat more fibre, eat more unprocessed foods, eat more whole grain foods and legumes and things like this because they're healthy, quote unquote. Mm. And I guess that's because a lot of this messaging is designed towards people who are sedentary, don't do a lot of exercise, therefore have very low energy needs, therefore they're going to eat less food and they need filling up more so mm. they're not hungry to avoid overeating. Mm. So I guess in that population, it's it's perfectly sensible advice. But when you've got a, a runner or a triathlete or a cyclist who's doing, you know, 20 plus hours a week of training, then you run into the potential issue where if they take that message and apply it to them, and, you know, you, you see this a lot and you've probably seen it too, Steph, mm. this, you know, it's almost this anxiety that I have to eat whole grain foods mm -hmm. and eat lots of legumes and have brown rice and, um, you know, the grainiest bread I can possibly buy because it's healthy and that's what I'm supposed to eat because I'm an athlete and I want to be healthy. Mm. But the problem is that's fine if you eat two slices of bread a day, but if you eat five or six or seven slices of bread a day or just, you know, big serving of rice with dinner instead of this like small portion that's suitable for an office worker who doesn't do much exercise, mm. all of a sudden you're not getting 20 or 30 grams a day, which is the intention of that health message. You're now getting that 50, 60 grams a day of fiber. Mm. Yep, yep, exactly, yep. So it's as always trying to hone in that 
nutrition advice is based on individual needs, yeah, it's trying to, yeah, help individuals understand that there's different advice based on what your um, level of activity is. Mm, Absolutely. Mm. And and I guess, you know, taking that message that, you know, healthy is different for different people. Mm, Yeah, yep, exactly right. And you look at the National Nutrition Survey that looks at, okay, how well are Australians um, doing in terms of meeting their needs? Um, We are still under um, meeting, you know, the fibre for for males and, and females in terms of the recommended adequate intake. But, yeah, if we did that on athletes, uh, and again, then particular groups of athletes, you'll see a change in in how how well they're doing as well. Mm. So, yeah, it's very much different for different people. Yep. And so, in that case, you know, if you've you've got someone who's doing large volumes of training and is having too much fibre, obviously, we're trying to potentially reduce that. Um, and, and we're not saying to inadequate levels, so you now have those risks of all these issues. We're just reducing it down to the recommended amount from an amount that's you know double or even triple that amount Mm, mm. I guess in terms of where you start with that presumably it's then going to the what I guess and this is where I think there can be a bit of anxiety sometimes with athletes certainly I see it with the the clients that I work with Mm. is you're now saying to people eat white rice instead of brown rice and they're like that's unhealthy I can't eat white rice and have a bit of a freak (laughs) out about it Um, or Mm. you know I can't eat white bread that's that's you know yeah that's dirty processed food yeah. i can't be eating that but yeah. i guess the reality is if you're eating you know three or four or five slices of white bread you're going to get the same amount of fiber as the sedentary office worker who eats one or two yes. slices of of whole grain yep. bread whole grain bread yeah exactly and that still can have those nutritious foods um we're just looking at potentially reducing the volume of those to be able to fit in the other because potentially for them the aim is we need to get in more carbohydrates so your muscles can store more more carbohydrate for you for your um, exercise performance possibly it's energy intake if we need to increase you know people trying to increase muscle bulk etc so yeah it I guess the message we try and say as well in nutrition is we we try and go away from good and bad and you know we talk more about moderation and so um, I'd never think of any particular food or drink as, as being bad as such, but perhaps there's appropriate times and quantities to have them. Yeah. So I guess trying to find that balance for fiber for an athlete, I guess, first of all, do you ever see even endurance athletes with large training volumes that are actually not eating enough fiber? Does that actually happen? That's a good question. No, generally, the ones I work with are ultra endurance, so the fiber intake we're always very good at simply, yeah, because of that volume, but also because of the mindset. Like they generally do want to consume, you know, um, good healthy foods. So not that I can recall our majority actually very easily get the the fibre intake and it's more so about if they're experiencing particular um, gastrointestinal upsets or struggling to get in the energy intake that we'll look at manipulating it. Mm. Yep. Or as you said just before, it could be that, you know, they're getting so much fiber from things that they're actually not eating enough, say, protein-containing foods Mm. to optimize recovery or, you know, we've got to think about all the nutrients, not just one. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And, you know, also, as we've mentioned, there's different types of fiber. So there might be for a particular athlete, they may have a particular symptom and maybe manipulating a particular type of fiber in their diet just by reducing that may actually help with their symptoms as, as well. Yep, mm. yep, okay. All right, so I guess now f- finishing up looking specifically at fibre around sort of training and competition, uh, we talked about that at the start as one thing that has been traditionally a, a common recommendation, mm-hmm. you know, particularly for runners but, you know, cyclists and triathletes as well is to look at changing the amount of fibre, generally reducing it in the lead up to key training sessions or people will, you know, restrict fibre for, you know, potentially several hours before a run because they're worried it's going to make them want to go to the toilet or have gut issues and things like that. Mm -hmm. So that's a pretty long common recommendation Mm -hmm. for avoiding gut issues. Mm -hmm. Do you think that advice is still relevant now? We have a better understanding of the causes of uh, what we call exercise-induced gastrointestinal syndrome, mm. which is what we talked about in episode 7A of the podcast. So do you think that recommendation is still relevant mm. or do you think 
um, it needs to be tweaked or do you think it's completely missed the point now we have this better understanding of what's what's actually going on? Mm. Um, I would like to do further research in that very topic because, um, you know, we base that recommendation off general pop and um, theory on, on how fibre works. Um, and as we've mentioned, yeah, there's different forms of fibre and they can work differently. So I'd like to understand that a bit better in, in terms of the nitty gritty. However, I and and as we've mentioned, you know, gastrointestinal symptoms, there's a, a number of reasons why symptoms happen for an individual during exercise. So it's not as simple just to say, you know, manipulate this and that will be the answer. So I always think if we experience symptoms during exercise that we want to try and understand that further and try and understand which pathway that's happening for before giving um, too much general advice. However, some of the theory in terms of how fibre works and the different types, um, you can, um, I think, still look at manipulating, manipulating that in the short term to see if that does have um, benefit for an individual. It's not something, again, that we're encouraging someone to, to do for a long period of time, but it's usually in you know, just the period before their actual event or it's for maybe 24 to 48 hours leading into and then they're reverting um, back to their typical diet as well. And so if, if someone's just got like a, a run session, say in the afternoon after work, for example, pretty common one for particularly triathletes who might do two sessions a day, um, what would you, like if, if they're thinking, oh, you know, fiber might be contributing to my gut issues, are you generally talking, I mean, this is not, you know, a race day, mm. but are you generally talking about, you know, restricting for maybe two, three hours or mm. longer than that potentially? Mm. Yep. Um, I always try and limit less than what I need to um, where possible, obviously, because we don't want to re restrict someone's food where we don't need to. So, yeah, generally I'd look at is there a simple um, thing that stands out where which I can change. And so, yeah, it, it is possibly looking at, well, what are they eating just before the session? How close are they eating that? Because that could simply be the issue. It might not even be necessarily high fibre as such, but they're consuming something then getting out the door and that's giving them symptoms. Um, so, yeah, possibly looking at the fibre content just before they've you know whatever that meal is before and potentially tweaking that um and then if we don't get a response you then particularly look at the that day so yeah but again my first preference usually is to try and have more of a thorough um assessment of the reasons you know that they're potentially getting those gut symptoms and not just yeah. blaming it on um fiber as such yeah yeah okay um and is there on the flip side times where sort of getting that higher amount, you know, 40, 50, 60 grams of fibre a day might be fine or even perhaps beneficial for an athlete? Mm. Um, I would say um, by trying to increase it to that level, if you want to feel quite full possibly, then, you know, it, it, it might be um, useful in the short term. So like a like a maybe a rest day where you deliberately don't want it eat as much because you don't need to fuel yeah um but you're worried that you're going to be too hungry because you're used to eating a bigger quantity but suddenly you've got a, a couple of rest days for whatever reason you're traveling or you've been sick or you've got a little bit of a niggle and you're taking a rest for a few days that might be a time where that would be more appropriate it, yeah it may be there's no actual upper level of intake recommended at the moment in terms of fiber intake um but again, because it may, you know, down the track interfere with bioavailability of nutrients, you may not want to do that for too long term. The other thing as well is you you need to consider the sources of where you're getting the fibre. There's been some suggestion that when you've got such high intakes of fibre, you might actually accidentally, like so incidental intake of increasing your intake of pesticides and other agricultural chemicals like um, heavy metals nitrates and other things um, just because of you, you're just getting in such a significant amount and that's going to depend on your source of, of intake um, and then it's just about potentially changing the type of um, bac bacteria and your actual tolerance to to um, be able to take on board that amount of, of fiber but yeah it's it's no real clear 
um, advice on that. And then there's also individuals that might have particular gastrointestinal conditions and maybe having a, a higher fibre intake or of particular types of fibre, that may be beneficial for the particular condition and that's something where we are trying to do more, more research um, into that area as well. Yeah, okay, cool. All right, well, let's sort of summarise all of this and sort of have the key take-home messages. So I guess coming back to our question, is fibre my friend or my enemy? Well, I guess it's generally speaking, it's our friend, but if we have too much, it can become mm-hmm. the enemy. And it's about sort of getting adequate but not excessive fibre in our diet. The variety of foods that contain fibre is useful. Both having a mixture of soluble and insoluble fibres is going to be important. Um, the amount we're aiming for is about 25 grams a day for females and about 30 grams a day for males. But if you go a little bit over that, it's probably not a big consequence. It's only if you go you know, significantly over that, that that can be an issue. I guess we talked about the fact that, you know, if you're eating a lot of sort of really unprocessed foods, whole grain foods, legumes and things like that, but you're eating enough calories to sustain a large training volume, which a lot of runner cycles and triathletes are, there is a significant risk of over-consuming fibre. And so, in fact, when you're eating big quantities of pasta and rice and bread and these kinds of foods, you might actually need to consciously go for the lower fibre versions of those at times or or quite often in terms of, you know, white rice, lower fibre bread. You know, it may not necessarily be white bread, but, you know, not the super, you know, capeseed loaves and Mm. things like that. Same with pasta, normal white pasta rather than wholemeal pasta because, that's just going to bring your fibre intake back to a normal level. So it's not going to make it low, but it's just not going to, it's going to prevent it from being Mm -hmm. excessive. And then finally, in terms of the timing, that can be manipulated potentially around training as well, particularly if you're eating it just beforehand. And uh, we'll talk about next week's episode shortly, uh, but there might be times where you do deliberately want to do that and we'll we'll get to that um, when the time comes. Yeah, and I think as well, People, when we said, you know, everyone's individual, how fibre actually um, works in your gut can be different. So how it works in my gut can be different to how it works in your gut. So maybe you tolerate Mm. fibre better than me um, or particular types of fibre. Maybe a particular fibre slows down transit for you better than it does for me. So, again, just because a particular fibre works for someone doesn't mean it's going to respond the way um, for you as well. And then I think I just um, recommend that anyone that does want to um, read into this uh, uh, in a bit more detail, we can put this on our um, social media hour. But there's been there was a review done in 2020 by um, Samantha Gill and, and colleagues that gives a really nice overview of dietary fibre in terms of gastrointestinal health and disease, the different types and how it works. Shows you how bloody complicated it is as well. Um, but it can show you how certain ones may may help in terms of transit time, fermentability, et cetera. So, yeah, if anyone does want to read into that a bit more, um, we can send out that resource into our social media. Yeah. Uh, and then finally, I was just thinking as you were saying that, you know, if we go back to one of our earlier episodes, we talked about how you change the amount of calories and the amount of carbohydrate potentially that you eat from one day to the next because your training load is different on Mm -hmm. different days and then the same will be then true of fiber but it will usually follow the opposite pattern to the carbohydrate so if you're deliberately increasing the quantity of carbohydrate you probably need to think about reducing Mm -hmm. the fiber intake or at least um, you're going for the lower fiber versions of foods whereas on the flip side on the days where you're eating less that's where having more fiber might be helpful in terms of keeping you feeling full. So the overall volume of food and, and that feeling of satiety from your meals is comparable, even though you're eating quite a bit less potentially. So yeah, just think on those days where I'm deliberately fueling more in anticipation for training to come, then maybe lower fiber. On the days where I'm deliberately fueling less for whatever reason, then higher fiber might be advantageous. Yep, spot yep. on good summarizer as always. All right. Well, we've bonus rounded you a couple of times, Steph, but I've got some new bonus round questions for you. Yes. So (laughs) our first question, (laughs) your biggest sports nutrition fail in your own running? Mm, It's a good question. Um, I should just say there's been none because I'm such a fantastic, you know. Oh, just a perfect model (laughs) of sports dietitian. Um, There's probably been a number. I've definitely done silly things where, you know, I've consumed – 
things that I perhaps shouldn't have and gone out for a run, but maybe that's been training my gut. Probably the standout one though for me is when I went to Trans Rockies um, and I, I, although I'd done the the training with what the nutrition I was, you know, um, expecting to take on board and actually challenge my gut with a lot, I, I didn't appreciate the effect attitude would have on me um, and I also just didn't appreciate silly in terms of how I would get over sweet stuff because I just loved it in my in my training sessions and could take a huge amount. Um, you know, we spoke where I was getting up to towards the 90 grams of carbs an hour and I was using certain fuels at the time. They were called Zip Fit and they had 50 grams of carbs in a gel and I was gulping those down and then, yeah, got to racing over in um, in Boulder and just got significant nausea and, and couldn't get it down. But I didn't plan for that. And so my carbohydrate intake significantly decreased. Um, so that's for sure a, um, a failure on my part for not having a backup strategy and appreciating how my taste and tolerance can change. Mm, absolutely. Mm. All right. What's the first thing you're going to do when you submit your PhD thesis in about three or four weeks' time? (laughs) Do your study hour. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Celebrate with you for five hours. Um, Party with um, my fiancé and my little guy here, Cooper. Um, And um, I really would love to get down to to Adelaide and see my family and friends because I haven't seen them for um, a a long period of time. Yeah. Cool. Uh, your favourite sporting moment in 2022 so far? It's a really good question. Like, I feel like I haven't paid attention to what's been going on, um, except for in thesis mode. But AFLW um, Crows winning their third, I think, premiership. And actually, I'd stopped watching footy because Mark Rusciuto was my guy in terms of football, and he's a Way Korean, um, so from Way Korea, where I'm from. As soon as he stopped mm-hmm. playing footy, I stopped some. Um, actually following that's I'm a big I was a big crow supporter um and then more recently my partner is a Melbourne supporter and grand final crows against Melbourne and uh we ended up winning so um yeah that was it was just so exciting to watch and just seeing how um yeah how exciting it was and um how the the sport with with females in AFL um W has has grown and um I think it's just as fun and good to watch as watching the men out there. Yeah. Yep, definitely. Mm. Cool. And the final question, because I'm sure people are dying to know, <laughs> you're a big Biscoff fan, yes. thanks to, to Emma Jeffcoat, yes. but what's your favourite way to eat Biscoff? Do you like it plain? Do you have it on bread? Yep. I know you're big on the Biscoff Kit yeah. Kats. There's a few different options out there these yep. days. What, what's number yeah, one? Yeah, well, um, Biscoff's actually like comes from the um, well, I think German background, right? Um, so Belgium. Oh, is it Belgium? Well, we had it a lot Belgium. in um, with my because I've got German background, so we had it a lot there. But um, so maybe my craving comes from from having that in the background. But definitely, like easy response here, Biscoff Kit Kat. Yeah, like yeah. it's. Yeah, um, I always go searching for them now and make sure I've got a few in the pantry to to keep me going. Yeah, <laughs> have you nice. tried it they yet? Dirt cheap too. Oh, yeah, cool. yeah, 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 yeah. And what's your favourite? Yeah, nice. Um, I like it just on yeah. bread, like plain yeah. bread, not yeah. toast. Yeah, yep, yep, yeah. Mm. There you go. Mm. It's done well in yep. every kind. Yep, exactly right. All right. Well, thank you, Steph, for your expertise and knowledge on all things fibre. It's great to get a sense of that and and hopefully, Lionel, that sort of answers your questions around this particular topic. Um, Just a reminder, if you do have a question that you'd like answered on the podcast, you can contact us at The Long Munch on Facebook, Twitter or Instagram. We'd love to hear from you. And we've certainly had quite a few suggestions. Mm. And uh, if it hasn't come up yet, apologies. Mm. It's probably because we're trying to chase uh, an expert guest to to answer that question for us on the podcast Um, but other than that Steph I think um, well actually next week's episode we need to introduce that don't we so um, we're actually not going to have an athlete guest for this particular episode because it was sort of a little bit more conceptual Mm. um, 
well, I can think of a few athletes who probably had excessive yeah. fibre and reduced it and been beneficial, yes. but um, that's okay. Um, so we're going to go straight to episode 41 next week. So episode 41A, uh, and our question is kind of be a bit of a follow-up to our topic in episode 39 around carbohydrate and a little bit related to today as well. Uh, and our question is, what is gut training and how do I do it? So again, mm-hmm. you know, throughout these podcasts, we've talked a lot about gut training in terms of fluid in terms of carbohydrate, um, in terms of just the volume of food as well, um, and and tolerating that better, you know, come race day. So how do we actually manage to to do that gut training? What does it actually mean? um, And how can we benefit Mm, from it? Yeah, I think um, this one should be a popular one for, for everyone to listen to. And we would love our the people we work with to to listen to as well, because it would encourage them to to try this. Um, but yeah, hopefully we can give people some nice practical tips to, to be able to go out and do this in your training and see if, and we would love feedback on whether you've found it beneficial. Yep, absolutely. Mm. All right. Well, I think that's it from us today. Hopefully everyone has enjoyed the episode and we'll be back next week to talk all things gut training. Awesome. Cool. We will see you then.